We're going to take a one Sunday break from our series, uh, our exposition of the book of Acts. And today, because it is Reformation Sunday, uh, we want to go to what most of you know is my favorite book of the Bible, the book of Ephesians. Uh, uh, I love all of the books of the Bible because all of them tell us of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, I guess one good reason to love Ephesians is it's shorter than the book of Romans. And so uh, 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 we go there often, and uh, whether it is Ephesians uh, 2, 1 through 10, you have heard of that passage, I think, uh, or whether it's this particular portion we've selected today from chapter 1, beginning in verse 3, I could spend the rest of my life preaching from this one text. And I would never exhaust uh, its power, its application, uh, its meaning, its testimony to the grace of God extended to us through His Son, Jesus Christ. And so, uh, again, as you open to Ephesians 1-3, which we will read in just a moment, let me say this in acknowledgement of and in celebration of uh, what we call uh, Reformation Sunday. Tomorrow, October 31st, will be the 505th anniversary of the day in which a frustrated and despairing German monk by the name of Martin Luther nailed a document to the door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany. That document has come to be known as the 95 Theses and is remembered as the spark that ignited the inferno, and I would say an inferno that still burns, that is the Protestant Reformation. On the day that Luther nailed that document to the church door, he would have had no idea of the shock waves that the document and all that flowed from it would cause in both the church and in the world. To be sure, Luther, Luther sought to discuss and debate with the leadership of the Roman Catholic Church the destructive and unbiblical doctrines and practices that were the norm of the medieval church. They were so destructive and deceptive that the gospel itself had been lost to those in the pulpit and to those in the pews. Simply put, the way of salvation had been forsaken and a counterfeit substituted to the destruction of their very souls. He sought to restore the church to its historic moorings, that is, to its biblical foundation, namely the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. There were two intertwined strands that came together in Luther's life. The first was the strand of scholarship. He was a trained and brilliant academic professor teaching in the university. This led him to an ongoing and serious study of the Scriptures. In studying the Bible, he became convinced that what the church practiced and preached and what the Bible said were in conflict, even diametrically opposed to one another. Who or what would triumph in this conflict? Would he assert the truthfulness of Scripture that he had discovered, or would he defend the error of the supposed infallibility of the Roman Catholic Church, the church and the doctrine that he had pledged to defend? The second of the intertwined strands was his personal concern 
for his own salvation. He was plagued of soul even to the brink of insanity as his work in the academy consistently brought him face to face with Scripture. He was personally plagued, even tormented by doubts and fears concerning the state of his soul and the ability of the church to lead him to a place for both now and eternity in which he could know the peace of eternal life. The 95 Thesis was penned and posted in the midst of years of struggle during which he discovered the great truth and even the great anthem of the gospel found in Romans 1.17. The just shall live by faith. While long tormented, he eventually discovered that the good news was and still is that God grants to those who believe not only forgiveness of sins but also a righteous standing before him because of the accomplishment of Christ received through faith apart from any works on our part. Luther was and is a controversial person. He was bombastic. He was irascible. He was infuriating. He was vicious in attacking all that he perceived to be in opposition to himself, to God, and to God's gospel. His rants against the Jews are frequently cited as a basis to dismiss his accomplishments. He was a flawed man of a flawed time, like all other men in all other times. While a flawed man, I'm convinced Luther's insights and lasting contributions through which the gospel was recovered and restored to its rightful place in the church was that and remains that which should be frequently and appropriately remembered. It is right to celebrate his pivotal role in the recovery and the preservation of the gospel. It is because of him and others before and after him and that it is with all who love the gospel that we acknowledge and celebrate Reformation Sunday 2022 by proclaiming together the five solas of the Protestant Reformation, five simple statements that form guideposts and guardrails that aid us in seeing with great clarity Jesus Christ and his gospel. We confirm and confess sola gratia, sola fide, sola Christos, sola scriptura, and sola Deo gloria. We believe that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, revealed to us through scripture alone, to God's glory alone. Read with me from Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him things in heaven 
and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his own will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word, for your word is truth. It is that which you have given to us so that we may know you may know you as our God, as our creator, and as our redeemer. I pray that you would reveal to us our sin, and in that you would convict us so that we would flee to the life-giving, life-saving gospel of your Son, Jesus Christ. We ask these things in his name. Amen. As we come to the text, to be, to be sure, we're going to go into it uh, with the intent of mining, of drawing out of it, of stating clearly the realities of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the way we're going to display this great jewel of the gospel is much like a jeweler in making a fine ring would take and take that diamond and set it amongst some prongs so that that diamond would be set in such a way that you could see its excellence and its beauty. And so I would suggest to you, while the precious jewel, the diamond, is the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, the prongs upon which I want to rest it today are these things that we call the five solas, the five affirmations of God and God alone as our Savior, And we can see them, I think, very clearly uh, within uh, this text. You probably already know that when you begin in verse 3 and you continue through verse 14, that in the original language you're looking at one sentence, 202 words that form a symphony and a soliloquy to the very glory of the grace of God, expressed and accomplished and applied through the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so let's look today, as, as always is the case, we're not going to exhaust everything that this passage has to say to us. We can come back to it again, and we will. But we want today to look specifically at this, uh, this thread uh, that, will, that we can draw through it and make these five statements for the sake of simplicity, for the sake of clarity, for the sake of gaining a new understanding, a more complete understanding of the glory of God revealed in the salvation accomplished through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's begin by the affirmation that we are saved because of God's grace and that important modifier alone. That, that God is under no one's influence, he's under no one's coercion in order for him to save. He is chosen because he is intrinsically gracious 
to save sinners, to save those who deserve His wrath. We see this mentioned both in verse 6 and 7, that this working of salvation from eternity past through the accomplishment of the Lord Jesus on the cross and kind of the present to the working of the Spirit and applying that salvation to the individual in salvation with the anticipation of our knowing all the fullness of all that God has ordained in His Son one day in the future. And so we see that this is to the praise of His glorious grace, and we are experiencing the richness of His marvelous grace. Anytime that I think of and mention the doctrine of God's grace, I cannot help but think of that uh, very simple acronym that I learned in Sunday school as a, a very young boy, that grace is, can be defined and explained using the letters G-R-A-C-E, that it is God's reward or God's riches at Christ's expense. And so it is God demonstrating favor toward those who deserve His wrath. And it's certainly uh, accompanied by what we might think of as mercy and love. And so when we think of this kind of three-thread strand or three-corded rope, we're talking about God doing that which we cannot do to those who are unable, who are unwilling, who are actually His enemies. That God being favorably disposed, that He has acted on our behalf, that even while we were yet sinners, God demonstrates His love for us through the person and work of His Son. And so, grace is truly the the demonstration of, of the character of God. Sometimes when we talk about God, we very quickly get caught up in the attributes of God and the character of God, and, and, and those are important. I think they're, I think they're valid uh, things to study and look, look at, but sometimes we, we get into this business where we kind of play the, the character of God and the attributes of God against them. We, we kind of uh, uh, put uh, God's grace and God's holiness and His wrath and His justice kind of in, in opposition to each other. And the truth is, God is the revelation of the perfection of all of His attributes. That, that grace is the statement and revelation of the, all of the perfections of God. And so, we see God on display in extending His grace to sinners. There is a a genuine triumph of grace, that grace overcomes our own sin and our own rebellion. And to be sure, it is a sovereign application of that grace to those that have been chosen, those that have been predestined, that God seeing the lost race of humanity, those that have been consigned to disobedience, those that have been included in Adam's rebellion, that have been credited with his guilt, he chooses according to his own character and his own will to bestow grace upon some. It is a marvelous, sovereign grace. Sometimes labels are helpful. 
Uh, I guess the, the label on doors to tell you what's behind that door are good things. And so on we could go. The titles on books are essentially labels. The labels on food products are good things. And sometimes labels are helpful and sometimes they're not. And we've had all of these discussions over the years about various labels, uh, liberal and conservative and charismatic and Pentecostal and reformed and Arminian and Calvinist and all of these things. And that's well and good. And I've come down and I've said this many times, and it's probably a term that, that maybe you first heard from me. It's not... I didn't coin it, I didn't invent it, but I'm convinced that one of the appropriate ways of understanding God and the salvation that he accomplishes is the term monergist or monergism. It's the idea of there's one energy or one worker, that God and God alone is the one being working in salvation. Grace excludes our contribution. It, we don't have a contribution to make. And so God and God alone acts sovereignly and monergistically uh, to save us. As Paul would write in the book of Romans, quoting from the book of Exodus, God says, I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion upon whom I will have compassion. That God freely chose to exercise his grace upon the elect because he was intrinsically and essentially motivated to do this. And so grace is absolutely necessary if sinners are to be saved. I've mentioned already that God in his wisdom, and we could, we could get into all kinds of questions of why it is that, that God placed that tree in the garden, why he didn't put electrified barbed wire, razor wire around it, but he didn't. He gave the simple commandment and the warning associated with that commandment. And Adam rebelled, and God chose that Adam would be the head of the human race. And when he rebelled, we rebelled in him, and we are condemned as guilty, as un righteous. As I mentioned a moment ago, he has consigned all over to disobedience. And so by our very identity, we are condemned. If we are to be saved, it will be only because of God's grace. But not only are we guilty by our association, our identity, we'll get, we're guilty before God because of our own corruption. If you turn over just a page to Ephesians chapter 2, we're corrupt or depraved in our wills. In verse 2 of Ephesians chapter 2, we're described as being dead, but yet at the same time, we're walking and following the course of the air. We're following the prince of the power of the air. We're, we're willing, we're doing, we're doing that which is an offense to God. And then in our very nature, look at verse 3 among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. We're doing that which we want to do. I've mentioned this many times before. Luther's great contribution and great work to uh, this idea of human sinfulness was called the bondage of the will. Many of you may have had a copy of it, may have seen it. 200 years later, uh, what I'm 
told is the greatest theological mind that uh, America's ever produced, Jonathan Edwards, came back with the freedom of the will. Now, just looking at the titles, you would say, well, they, they didn't get along, did they? They didn't agree with each other. But they were both describing the same reality of the lostness of every individual. What Edwards did was understand that the will does what it does because of its intrinsic association and connection to the nature. Because our nature is corrupt, we willfully act corruptly. Okay, And so he could say that when, the, when a, a creature acts according to its nature, it is acting freely. That's why you hear me say so many times, people do what they want to do. And the problem is what they want to do. Okay, Because of what? Their nature inclines their will into and towards and through rebellion against God. And even if we were to think that we might contribute something, that we might be good, that we might seek to appease God on our own, the prophet Isaiah described our righteousness. In other words, that, that which we might deem as good, as filthy rags. And Paul could comment apart that through the works of the law, no man will ever be justified. And so we are flawed. We are marred, we are mired in sin and evil and death. While we don't speak of utter depravity, we do describe depravity as having infected the entire man. It would be right not only to describe depravity as, to, as total, it is universal. It extends to all men in all places at all times. It is radical and it is the terminal condition of all men unless God by His sovereign grace, intervenes on the behalf of the elect. And that's why Paul would write here in Ephesians 2 and verse 8, For by grace you have been saved. God's activity, God's display, God's revelation, God's testimony, God's accomplishment was done because of His graciousness. He, he acted because he was motivated in and of himself. He redeemed because of himself for himself. Let's look at the second of these solas. We are saved by Christ alone. Going back to chapter 1, you see at least on four and four passages or four verses here, verses 3, 5, 9, and 12, the mention of the outworking, the manifestation, the accomplishment of this grace, the testimony of this grace has been done through the person, through the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, the, the one who is uniquely the Son of God, the one who is also in the line of Adam, but yet also not the inheritor of his guilt or his nature by virtue of his incarnation through the overshadowing work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus was a, had a human nature, but not a depraved, corrupt nature. And so he was uniquely son of God. He was the son from man, and he was the son promised not only to David, but to Adam as the serpent crusher 
to Abraham as the one through whom all the nations would be blessed, to David as the one who would establish a throne from which he would rule and reign forever. And so only a man could be our substitute, could suffer the wrath of God, defeat death for us, be our sympathetic high priest. Only God could accomplish reconciliation. And so the person of Christ did the work of Christ. He came, and sometimes theologians will talk about the active obedience of Jesus and the passive obedience of Jesus. Active, and he came to obey God's law. Jesus, you remember in Matthew 5, 17, said, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill it. That I came to meet its every demand and to do it perfectly. Let me tell you something about the reality of our depravity in view of the law. Even when you don't lie and you don't steal and you don't do that which is prohibited, you still do it sinfully. That you do it out of pride or selfish motivation, that, it, that it's tainted with the stench of our sin and therefore is unacceptable to God. But Jesus has done everything that God has demanded. He has lived the righteous life. He has then died as a perfect sacrifice. He has given his life as the atoning death. Sometimes we speak of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ as the penal substitutionary death of our Lord Jesus Christ. As our vicar, sometimes the term vicarious is added in there, that as our substitute, our representative, Jesus was the substitute who died on the cross in atonement for our sin. He propitiated, there's that word again, okay, I love it, It's a great word. Jesus received in himself the wrath of God that should have been poured out on Tim Evans. The wrath that should have been poured out on all of those who believe. That Jesus was punished. The the innocent was judged as guilty and received the punishment of the guilty in my place. And God's wrath and justice and holiness have been satisfied in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And folks, that is good news for us. And then not only did he propitiate the wrath of God, he expiated our guilt. Pictured in that day of atonement when the High priest confesses on the head of the goat and sends him out into the wilderness, removing that guilt from the company of the people of Israel. Jesus Christ has removed our guilt. Again, our sin, oh, the bliss of that glorious thought, our sin not in part but the whole, has been nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. That's a great thing. And so... In the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, our penalty is paid and our righteousness is accomplished and it is credited, it is imputed to us solely because Jesus did it for us. Not only has he done that, but Jesus has accomplished the victory over death. Paul can speak of death and the law and sin and all of these things that stands against us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But here we see 
that Jesus Christ is the victor for us over sin and death and the grave. His victory is our victory. When we celebrate baptism, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we are celebrating in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus has paid it all, and He has rose victorious over all that held us bondage. He is the singular victor for us. And so we live in anticipation of His promised return. And sometimes when we talk about the the hope of the return of Christ, we might picture our salvation as incomplete. We don't want to do that. Our our salvation is full and complete. And I I love this this phrase. Look back there in verse 3 of chapter 1. Pronouncing the blessing in the first clause, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing, in the heavenly places. I remember years ago, uh, the dean at Beeson Divinity School came to Philadelphia Baptist Church and did uh, kind of a a seminar, a a series on the book of Ephesians. And so uh, he stepped out of the pulpit one Sunday morning, coming coming down the aisle, and said, Dean George, can, can you explain to me what this phrase means, the phrase that I just read, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And he, it kind of caught him off guard. I was proud of myself there for a while. But then I thought, you know what, he, he's going to have to sign my diploma one day. I might not should have uh, been so proud. Of... But what a thought. Jesus Christ is our blessing. And he is in heaven. Salvation is ultimately not only about the forgiveness of sin and a right standing before God, but it is a privilege of being eternally satisfied in the face of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he is in heaven and he is awaiting us one day. And that he is in, in heaven declares the certainty that his work was accepted, it genuinely was finished, and our salvation was complete. And one day, we'll know, the, we'll know fully the perfection of the salvation that he has accomplished for us. And so, again, we are saved because of, on account of, the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He and he alone without anyone's assistance, without anyone's uh, uh, help, Jesus Christ, exclusively, singularly, exclusively, uniquely, He is our Savior. We are saved by Christ alone. Third thing this morning, third of the five solas, we are saved when we hear the word of truth. That is, we are saved through the proclamation of Scripture alone. Look at verse 13, again, still in chapter 1. He can talk about salvation as that which God ordained in eternity past, that which was accomplished by the Lord Jesus Christ in time and space, in His life and in His death. 
He can talk about the work of the Spirit that, that saves us and gives us this sense of anticipation to the, to the fullness of the revelation of His glory when we see Him. But this all came, this, we experienced this, we came to know this salvation. Verse 13, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in Him. Sometimes those of us that have a very high view of God and His sovereignty and His grace and His glory, uh, we might be accused of uh, being fatalist or something like that or not being passionate about evangelism or any number of things. But here's the deal. God's plan is inclusive. That those He has chosen to save will be saved when the saved go out and proclaim this word of truth, the gospel of their salvation. No one is saved if nothing is ever proclaimed. Paul asked kind of the rhetorical question in Romans chapter 10 and verse 13, how are they to hear without someone preaching? Again, the anticipated answer is they're not going to hear, they're not going to be saved, faith is not going to come by hearing if someone doesn't go and preach and proclaim this gospel of a Savior whose name is Jesus Christ, the revelation of a gracious God who saves. And so we're saved when we hear this word of truth. And this word of truth, and this is probably in, in my realm, as much as love the 95 Theses, love the concept of justification uh, by faith, I think the most powerful, most informing thing that we have inherited from Martin Luther is his understanding of law and gospel. Uh, I remember years ago, and I've, I've mentioned several times recently, these uh, wild-eyed crazy men on the, the White Horse Inn, uh, led by a theologian by the name of Michael Horton. They were the original crazy Christians that I ran across about 25 years ago. And they talked often about this distinctive that has remained in Orthodox conservative Luther, Lutheranism of the distinction, and, and, and we never want to blur the lines between law and grace, that the law is necessary to condemn men. It, it, the law demands our unrelenting, unyielding, unwavering obedience to it. Perfection is the only standard under God's law. It, the law reveals the character of God. What kind of God is this? He is a holy God. He will judge in His holy wrath those who break His holy law because it is an offense against His holy character. And so all are indicted, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We sin by committing sins, being active by stealing and lying, and on and on it goes. We sin by way of omission, by failing to do that which is commanded. But the law establishes our guilt before God. The writer of Hebrews wrote that the Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, the dividing, dividing the joints and the marrow. This law of God must be heard. It must, the, the Spirit must apply. The, the, the sinner must feel the weight of the law and their own personal guilt before a holy God, before they will relinquish all and rest in the sovereign goodness of God in the person and work 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. I know to, to modern sensibilities, that just say, oh, Tim, you're so mean. You make, you make people feel so bad all the time. No, don't like that. We want to make people feel good. No. We want people to be saved. And they must be guilty before a holy God, before they will flee to the grace of God extended in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every mouth is silenced before God's law. And God's law must be preached. Most great theological minds that have gone before us have indicated in doing evangelism, they would spend two-thirds to even 90% of their time preaching the law to establish an individual's guilt before God so they would understand the need of a Savior whose name is Jesus Christ. Even for the Christian, the law reminds us of our great need of a Savior. Now, again, rightly used, sometimes you can be encouraged that I'm not near the coveter or the lustful person that I once was. We can see some progress in sanctification, but what you don't see is perfection. And when you don't see perfection, what do you do? You flee to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. You flee to the revelation of the grace of God. And so uh, the law convicts and it, it establishes the, the greatness of the gospel, the greatness of the Savior. And so we must preach the law and then we also preach the gospel as the remedy for what the law has afflicted upon us. That, that the, the gospel is the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. I won't read it this morning, but so many times I've said one of the most concise statements of the gospel, of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, is found in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 5, where Paul, in very much shorthand fashion, establishes that the gospel is this work of the Lord Jesus Christ, which the prophets spoke about, which he passed on to those Corinthian believers. It is all about this person, Jesus Christ, his work on the cross, and the fact that he has been raised from the dead. I think if you go back and if you listen to dozens and dozens and dozens of my sermons, at some point, I always try to mention the reality of the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the cross and His resurrection. Why? Because I believe that in that, in that, in those, that, that reality, that is the power of God unto salvation. And so we always want to make mention of that. We always want that to be exalted in our midst. This, this word, this gospel, Peter can describe it as the imperishable seed of the new birth. And y'all know that I love that. That, that just, it, it is just a mystery beyond my imagination. That yes, our assignment is to sow, is to sow, is to sow. And to pray that God by His Holy Spirit would bring that seed to fruition. That, that if you are saved, you're served, why? you're saved, why? You heard the word of truth. You, heard, you, you received that imperishable seed, and it came to life, and it produced in you this thing that we call regeneration. We've talked a lot about that over the years, this working of God through which we come to believe. And so faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. People that can't hear must ultimately hear this word that Isaiah described as that which does not return void. And so this gospel reveals the character of God. In fact, the gospel is God. The gospel 
is that he gives of himself. The good news is we get to enjoy God forever. The gospel gives us forgiveness and life and hope. And the instrument that God has given us so that men, women, and boys and girls be saved is this word of truth. Sometimes I chuckle in reflecting upon kind of my history and track record and so forth uh, here. One of the things that the search committee told me long ago, and I see Joe and Janet and Jeff, three J's there, that's interesting, never thought about that. Made preach a sermon alliterating that one day. But they told me, we want a preacher that'll preach the Bible. Remember that? Now, they didn't know what they were talking about, okay? I'll just tell you, you know, they, 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 woo, they didn't have, a, I said, listen, that's the only thing I got for you. I have nothing else to offer you. I really don't. And if you'll remember, the first sermon I ever preached is I determined to know nothing among you but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I pray that we have held fast. We're saved when we hear this word of truth and we believe we are saved through faith alone. As Luther would say, not a faith that exists alone, but a faith that is accompanied by good works. It's in the presence of repentance. But God has chosen faith as the sole conduit by which we become attached to the benefits of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are saved when we believe. It's a, a simple act, but faith will necessarily and essentially and intrinsically produce obedience. Faith that saves cannot be impotent. And so, I've said to you on a number of occasions that faith is most likely the most misunderstood doctrine and concept in the modern church. We don't know what faith is. We think it's a decision. We think it's something that's uh, occurred in the past. But for faith is an ongoing reality regarding a disposition of mind. It is a reality of a great object who saves that object being namely the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith really doesn't have any intrinsic value in and of itself. It is that which God has chosen to apply to us the benefits earned for us through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I would suggest to you, I only know the reality of genuine saving faith by its ongoing testimony in my life of the power of God towards obedience. The, the working out of, of conviction regarding sin. That, that there's nothing that we could say, confess, uh, affirm in terms of belief. We, we can hold to the most orthodox, the most sound of, of doctrines and be lost as the devil himself. A faith that saves cannot exist in a vacuum. It cannot exist alone. It produces a change in the inner disposition and orientation toward obedience. And so we're saved by faith alone, not, not by works, as Paul says explicitly once again. In chapter 2, verse 8, you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's a gift of God, and it's not a result of works. He's doubling down that salvation is essentially and exclusively of God. There's a simplicity to faith. Let me say this real quickly. Historically, theologians have talked in terms, and this is Latin, of notitia, a census, and fiducia. I've kind of divided it up. Notitia is the concept of the intellect. There's a certain amount of information that you must have. 
knowledge of yourself as a sinner, knowledge of what God has done in His Son, uh, Jesus Christ, and the necessity of believing uh, that truth. Again, understanding that it is all foolishness, that the natural man doesn't understand the things of God apart from the working of the Holy Spirit. But there's an amount of information that must be communicated in that word of truth, okay? And then there's the, the idea of the heart, that, that that which is said about Christ and the assessment of my life and myself, it must be received and accepted as authoritative and true. And then there's the will by which I willingly believe I rest in the accomplishment of Christ and he comes and get this hear this and I better not ever hear y'all say this I'll get you I made Jesus my Lord you didn't make Jesus anything Jesus is Lord and if he is your Savior he came as Lord and he came to do what lords and kings do that is rule and reign in your heart and he began making the changes he deemed wise the moment you were born again, the moment you believed. And so, we receive the Lord Jesus Christ. It is not of our own doing. God sovereignly designed salvation, sovereignly applied salvation. Fifth thing, we are saved to the glory of God alone. We see that in verse 6 that we're saved to the praise of His glorious grace. In uh, verse 12, we were the first to hope in Christ that we might be to the praise of His glory. In verse 14, speaking of the work of the Holy Spirit, we, to, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory, God saves by Himself and for Himself. That He would be praised by those that he saves, that he would be glorified in his graciousness, that he would be glorified in the accomplishment of his eternal purpose, that he'd be glorified in demonstrating his power to cause us to believe, to keep us believing, that God is presently glorified on earth as we do our good works before men. God is glorified in heaven as the angels rejoice over one sinner that repents, that, that the angels are, are looking at God's gospel, still working to save people, and they long to look into this matter of redemption by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ because they can't fully understand. They saw their angel buddies so many eons before condemned to an eternal hell by their one act of rebellion. But these human beings, God is saving through the gospel of His Son, Jesus Christ. God is glorified as believers are satisfied in Him, even here on earth. Paul can speak of learning contentment, that we rest in Him, that we're confident in Him in whom we have believed. And believers are satisfied when they are in heaven. Because eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor it has entered into the heart of man that which God prepared for those who love him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. I occasionally th see things on Facebook, and, and I'm not offended, and I'm not grinding an axe, but a lot of, you know, happy birthday in heaven for those that departed. And that's fine. I get it. I understand. But let me assure you this. Those that are in heaven could care less about their birthdays. 
because they have seen the face of the Lord Jesus Christ and they are celebrating Him and they are filled with the knowledge of His goodness, a goodness that overflows, the goodness that overwhelms, a goodness that reminds us of the greatness of their salvation, the greatness of their God, the greatness of the grace by which they were saved. And they couldn't care less about their birthday. And so I understand those of us that remain to grieve and mourn and experience the loss, but I want you to be reminded that those who know Jesus Christ are involved in an eternal celebration that surpasses any birthday party that anybody has ever had. I wish we had time because I would love to go, and maybe this, you can do this for your homework. When you get to Revelation chapter 4, and you begin in verse 8, you start seeing what I believe is the eternal vocation of the inhabitants of heavens. Worthy, worthy, worthy. Now, we believe He's worthy here today. But one day when we see Him, we will know how worthy He truly is. We are saved, and we confess that we are saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone, revealed in Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. A glory that we will be celebrated forever as we are perfectly satisfied in the perfection of the Godhead and their gospel accomplished and applied to us. I might throw in just one final slogan from the Reformation. Semper reformda, always reforming. We're always desiring to do what? To see the gospel of our Savior more clearly. Doing what is necessary in our own lives, and within the life of the church, that God and His Son, Jesus Christ, would be forever exalted. Pray with me. Father, we thank You for this testimony of Your grace, the reality of Your accomplishment of salvation. Lord, we rejoice in it. We pray that we would experience Your fullness in all of its incredible dimensions, as we await the day of your return, when we shall see your face and rejoice in it. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.